Hi, I'm Nikki from Teaching Autism and welcome to the Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. Are you an autism or special education professional? Are you a teacher or therapist looking for support and new ideas? You may even be a parent, family member or carer. This podcast is perfect to help you find out more information, support and get some of your questions answered. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Teaching Autism and Special Education Community Podcast. Today is the fifth episode in our sensory series with Becky from Sensory Spectacle and today we are talking all about sensory lifestyles. Before we dive in, I just wanted to remind you that you can have the chance to sign up to become a Teaching Autism VIP member for free for three days. So you get access to our library of resources, being able to connect with other teachers, problem solve and share tips and ideas for free for three days. If you want to find out more, head to the show notes and you can find out how you can become a Teaching Autism VIP and have all of these resources on hand to print today. But let's get back to today's episode and let me introduce you to Becky and today all about sensory lifestyles. Hi Becky and welcome back to another episode on the Teaching Autism and Special Education Community Podcast where we are going to be talking today all about sensory lifestyles. Before we start, in case anyone hasn't listened to our previous four episodes, could you give a little quick introduction of who you are and what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, My name's Becky. I'm the founder of Sensory Spectacle and we educate about and create awareness of sensory processing disorder. So we do that by running workshops, by creating immersive training with people with sensory processing disorder. We write books, we have online training. There's many, many ways that we help to try and create awareness. But largely, I just try and help to explain things in a slightly more understandable way. Definitely. And I love your Instagram for picking up those little tricks as well, especially last week where you sort of discussed how even snow can have such a huge effect. Oh, definitely. I mean, our daily life is constantly impacted by our senses, but for most of us, we're able to kind of adjust to it. But for people with processing difficulties, it's often more apparent and can then really affect their day to day living. Definitely. I never really thought about it until I seen your Instagram stories. And that's where actually I found you and decided to invite you on the podcast just because I love the way that you explain things and you make it a little bit less stressful to take all things sensory in. I like to think so. I think you really do. And that's why I'm really excited today to talk about a sensory lifestyle. But before we start, what is a sensory lifestyle? So a sensory lifestyle tends to be a term that I use um, where other people might use the word diet. So sensory diet or sensory plan. So to me, a sensory lifestyle is more of a long standing way that we can support someone with sensory difficulties. So I prefer to use that term rather than sensory diet because I feel that we refer to a diet as a bit more of a temporary thing. Um, We might go on a diet for a couple of weeks, whereas we know for people with sensory processing difficulties, actually, it's their daily life. It's their lifestyle which needs support. And if we can think about that in a slightly different way, so the way we support people, then we'll be thinking about actually making it relevant to their specific needs and something a bit 
more long with a bit more longevity than for something that might just be oh let's do a five minute march and then sit down again um so a sensory lifestyle is all about finding ways we can support someone to then help them to adapt to learn to self-regulate um but also because of those things we're going to be more able to recognize the slight changes that might occur on a day-to-day basis like we've just been talking about with the snow And also as they get older, um, we recognize this sensory need and sensory diet a lot in children. However, we also need to help recognize and support young people and adults. And it tends to be that by the time someone is an adult, their sensory lifestyle is a lot more kind of set in stone than it was when they're a child. Because they can be a little bit more in control as to things that they do each and every day. I love that, especially the idea where you said, you know, the sensory diet, that's very much more a temporary thing. And when you think of diet, like you say, it is a temporary thing. Usually people are trying out the newest thing that seems to work for everyone else. So I think a sensory lifestyle is a much better way to look at it. But like you say as well, it does evolve. And there are so many reasons why I think it's beneficial for us to consider you know, providing the support for a sensory lifestyle for our students and our children. But what would you say are the main reasons why it's so important that we do this? Because ultimately we want to be able to help the children and adults we're supporting to be able to regulate. So to be able to support themselves so that then wherever they are, so if they've gone to a party or if they're doing their shopping or if they're just going for a walk in in the community, that they will feel confident in being able to adjust to things which might otherwise seem quite um, uncontrollable or difficult to manage because of their sensory needs. And when we can support them to do that, and they'll feel a lot more confident in being able to, to focus, to have fun, to interact, maybe to communicate effectively, but also to learn. So ultimately to keep recognizing the things that are changing and evolving in the world around us definitely and I think it's just one other way that we can help our students especially in the classroom become more independent as they get older as well because I think sometimes maybe when we're with the little children and little students we don't always think of them in 15-20 years time when they're going to be in this world on their own and we really need to help them give them the tools to be independent rather than us doing all the things for them all the time most definitely and you know for our own well-being we need to be able to make sure that our child or our student then thrives and continues to become the person that they're that they're going to be definitely and it's all about helping them get the most out of their life as well but what are some ways especially maybe in the classroom how can we help to maybe not so much create a sensory lifestyle but help our students create one themselves Mm, so I think first of all we do need to take a bit of responsibility for ourselves and we we do need to recognize that person that student's overriding sensory needs and that's a term I use quite a lot um but you can learn more on on the videos that I've got online but also on my online training becoming a sensory detective and It's basically not just looking at and observing 
some of the characteristics that someone does. So it might be that you have a student that walks on their tiptoes. It might be that you have a student that finds it really difficult to sit still. And it's not just straight away thinking, oh, they need more vestibular input. or Oh, they need more proprioceptive body awareness input. Because there's many different reasons and sensory aspects as to why someone might walk on their tiptoes or why they might be moving quite a lot. So first of all, you have to observe your student, really get to know them and look at what are their overriding sensory needs. So which sensory systems do they most of the time look to support? And once we have a better understanding of that, that's when we can start to implement strategies and ways to support them. We can demonstrate that to them. So it might be things like having little movement breaks. It might be things like changing the focus. So I'm going to help my student get some proprioceptive input by them pushing a trolley of books to reception or to the library. Um, And it's just changing that environment, but also changing the way that they're using their body. It's also seen as being helpful. And it's also a different social and communication environment for that student as well. So other ways that we can think about adding or creating this lifestyle is by going back and just looking at what the student's already doing to support themselves. So if they're walking around and tapping things, why are they tapping things? Is it for the sound? Is it for the body awareness? Is it for the tactile? Is it for the visual? And once we can break that down, that's when we could then maybe start to incorporate activities which are providing a similar sensory element. So if they're banging for maybe proprioceptive and auditory, then maybe we can do things like drumming. So you can get an actual drum or you could make drums in the classroom. And so then you're putting it as part of your teaching, but you're also showing them strategies for, you know, further on in life. Um, It might be a hobby, it might be an interest, and a way of them being able to then support themselves a bit better. Once we're confident in recognising that in education, the same stuff can apply at home because with a sensory lifestyle, we're considering every environment. We're not just thinking, right, we'll support them in this way in school and this way at home. It's generally a lot more consistent and you'll see some similarities in the way that your child or student supports themselves across the environments as well. Definitely. And I think my biggest takeaway after listening to you these past two episodes across all the different subjects that we've discussed is just how much we can learn from our students and children as well. Because like you say, they're already finding ways to support themselves and help themselves and sometimes taking a step back and looking, we can learn so much more that way as well. Mm, Totally. And it can be very hard as a teacher to not kind of have a a strict kind of routine and plan for the day and I fully understand that and so when we're given you know a piece of paper that maybe from an OT to say this is our student sensory diet that can be really helpful for me as a professional as the teacher or, or assistant however it can also mean that in our mind we get stuck into a routine of right we must do this then then and then rather than recognizing actually that person and do they require that much input today or actually are they able to focus for that little bit longer and praising the fact that you know what 
they're regulating themselves, they're sitting on their chair, but maybe they're rocking forwards and backwards or wobbling side to side. But yet that's enough input for them to then be able to remain focused on the work that they're doing. If we carry on kind of thinking about the way we support people in a bit more of a timetabled approach, um, so oh, after break we'll do this or at 10 o'clock we're going to do this, it can then just be very difficult for that student to adapt that into their everyday routine. We don't choose when we feel cold. You know, if I'm cold and I'm sitting in my office I will just put my jumper on. I won't tell myself at a certain time I will put my jumper on. And I think that's the type of thinking we need to start to adapt to. I love that thought of not knowing what time you're going to be called because I just think that's something that resonates with us all because we can't control when we're hot, when we're cold. So it makes sense as well for that to use with our students when we're offering these sensory activities and things as well to help them where like you say they may not need it right now or they may need it more later on so I think that's a great way to look at it yeah hopefully it's if we can make things that resonate to our everyday routine it's then sometimes just a little bit easier for us to apply that into our job or you know the support that we're providing Definitely. And like you said, where sometimes it's really hard if we don't have a fixed plan or we're not maybe rigid with our routine. But maybe the way to look at it is, you know, if we go by the student themselves instead and when they need things, you know, sometimes it might only be for a few minutes and it's easier to slot in something there and then when they need it, then fight them for the next hour and then not get anything done anyway. Exactly. And then everyone ends up more stressed. And then when everyone's stressed, we've got all these um, hormones being released that then we have to release. And if we don't release then that's when we notice really, really overwhelming times in in our students and our own um, lives. Yes, definitely. Now, I know we've discussed a lot about how this can benefit our students. And I know a lot of my listeners may be thinking more along the lines of a student who has maybe they're on the autism spectrum but like we discussed before a few episodes back where anyone can have sensory needs it's not just students with autism so who would you say would benefit from a sensory lifestyle um everyone (laughs) I think using using the term sensory lifestyle we all that's what we all do constantly however when we're thinking more about you know actively providing strategies to support people it's anyone where you recognize that they find it difficult to to regulate themselves and I know I use that word a lot and it might be quite difficult to understand it when we're kind of observing a student but regulating would be does that student seem content in the environment that they're in Are they able to focus on an instruction that's being given to them, whether that's through words or whether that's through pictures? Um, How does that child respond to different times of the day? So do we recognise that, you know, they know that there's this routine of you come in in the morning and we do some sensory activities and do some work and then we have a break and then we do some more work or Do they need a little bit more guidance as to know what is happening next? And 
if we recognize that someone finds it difficult to regulate, it's probably because they're getting distracted with the sensory input that their brain's receiving. So maybe they're finding it difficult to concentrate on an instruction because actually the visual information is really overwhelming. Now, that could be the sunshine shining through the window, making shadows, which can be quite exciting. It might be the physical visual change. So classrooms are very busy. People are constantly up and about and moving. Maybe it's the visual element of that change that someone's finding difficult to then focus. If that's the case, that's when we can think about, okay, what support strategies can we put in place for, say, someone with a physical impairment or someone with a hearing impairment or a visual impairment or someone that has a diagnosis of Down syndrome? There's many, many different people who will have sensory difficulties But like I've just been saying, we'll all respond to it in our own way. So we really do need to have a good relationship with that person first. But it's where we recognise they have difficulties in modulating the amount of information they recognise. They might get really overwhelmed quite easily or they might be seeking out sensory input a lot of the time as well. They might seem or appear to be clumsy. So dyspraxia might be where someone finds it difficult to organise their motor, uh, their fine and gross motor skills. And so being able to manoeuvre throughout throughout the classroom without bumping into people or the wall or tables, that can then be um, a sign that we might need to provide extra body awareness for that student. That was brilliant. Thank you. And I love all the examples that you give because it's one thing hearing the information, but when you start to give examples, you start to think of different situations and students over the years and it helps it maybe click more in your mind as well because you've seen it or maybe you've sort of been there before and that resonates with you. I just find those examples really helpful. Yeah, I think it's all about that practical application. So when I go into schools and I support them, whether that's running training or, you know, in the classroom, the quickest way for me to highlight something to someone is to visually, you know, tell that to you. Oh, have you seen that they do that? Or do they always do that? Because a lot of the time we might not recognize it as a sensory need. We might just think that that's part of their personality, which is great. But it's also really important that we can relate it back to there's a purpose behind the characteristics we observe. Definitely. And I think you coming in and being able to make those links as well. I, you know, I can just imagine it being like a totally aha moment because maybe we haven't made those links before. Then sometimes even just a new set of eyes coming in can help us see things in a different way. Mm, absolutely I love going in and really getting to know students and you know looking at that overriding sensory need so looking at what is the purpose behind the whole kind of characteristics for sensory wise because once you can piece it all together it all makes so much more sense and then teachers can think about oh we could provide teaching in a different approach we might notice that someone who fidgets a lot of the time and moves a lot of the time requires that body awareness or maybe they bump into things and squeeze things a lot or push things actually can we make their work more physical as well so can we use you know more of that kinesthetic learning so if we're doing cooking can we make dough and really need that dough because when I'm kneading I'm actually using all of these joints and muscles 
that I that I was using other ways to grab and fidget things in the classroom. And it's amazing how much something really as simple as just kneading that dough, how many skills and different things we're working on with our students in that one really quick activity that doesn't even need any prep, really. Yeah, exactly. And like we know from some of the other podcasts, everything that I suggest actually is just already in our environment. And teaching life skills is then the next best step that we can do, because if we can teach cooking we know that that person's going to be a lot more familiar with things in their environment because eating is something that we have to do every day. Definitely. And I think I just love how everything sort of interconnects because we're always so worried about hitting different targets and working on different parts of the curriculum. But it's really easy, like you were saying, for things to overlap and for us to work on a range of skills in just one activity sometimes. Mm, Yeah, definitely. And on this subject, I know that this is probably something maybe you get asked quite a bit, I'm guessing, but how can we provide meaningful and motivating sensory filled days for our students in the classroom? So, like I've just been saying, for people with sensory processing difficulties, regardless of their other diagnoses, they will be constantly trying to regulate. So they'll be doing something constantly in order to organise all the sensory information that their brain's receiving. So one of the most effective ways that we can support people is actually by letting them do that, but also us trial and error, finding out other strategies to support them. That's the most meaningful way we can support people because then we're showing them that we really do understand what they need. Um, we know that during a day it can be really confusing, really exhausting for people with sensory processing difficulties. So if you know that someone particularly enjoys cars, for example, then why not try and theme some of your sensory activities relating to cars so that then it doesn't just feel like a sensory based activity. It's actually now something that's a little bit more fun. Most of the activities you're already doing, your student will find a way of supporting their sensory needs. So it might be that you've put out a lovely sensory bin. So you've got, you know, lots of dried rice in there with maybe some animals to discover or whatever it is. And your aim for the class is to discover and find these animals. However, For your students, your students that are requiring that sensory input, you'll notice actually they'll do something different. And whatever that is will be what their body needs. So being able to rustle the rice, so wiggling it around on the tray, actually that auditory input might be enough for them to then help them regulate themselves during that activity. It might create a a type of white noise, which then actually helps them to filter out everything around them. They might pick up the rice and drop it. So um, like um, flickering it down through their fingers. And that might be similar to someone who loves water play and flickering things up and about, or it might be the visual element of it. So most activities that you're already doing that are sensory focused will be meaningful. Our job is to allow their sensory needs to come through so that then we can help them to use that activity to support themselves. Um, Like I mentioned, one of our big problems within 
education and structured environments is that we have a routine and we have a timetable to follow. So it might seem easy for us to then add in a sensory diet, a sensory lifestyle to that because it's part of our timeline then throughout the day. However, we don't want to have the approach of that tick box. We want to be able to see and observe those physical achievements that that student has actually found a way of regulating themselves and praising that because that's then a life school they've developed. So it might be that your student has managed to sit in assembly for two minutes longer than usual. And so that means when that student comes out of assembly, you need to be aware that actually that could mean that student might need two minutes more outside or regulating or pushing or squeezing or doing something in order to help them not just process what's happened in the assembly, but also just to reorganize their senses because it was a totally new experience. The other thing that we might find difficult is we might often just think about adding in sensory input. And when we're thinking about sensory lifestyle, to make it meaningful, it has to relate to that child's specific needs. So it's not always about just providing sensory, sensory, sensory. It's about looking at, okay, that person requires that auditory input with the tactile. However, they find the visual really overwhelming. So how can we then create an activity which provides tactile and sound input, but doesn't rely on the visual element? And so that's when we can make um, sensory activities really meaningful, when they're personalised for your specific students. That was really helpful. Thank you so much. I just love all those different examples you give as well. And I think the most resounding thing that I've kind of taken away is that when we give these activities, it's really easy for us to stick to exactly what is on our lesson plan. But hearing you talk, it's really important for us to take that step back, be a little bit flexible and see what the students do with the activities as well, because Obviously, they are their own experts. We don't know them as much as they know themselves. And they're going to find ways that work for them. And maybe take a step back, allow them to do that. And don't worry too much about how you wanted to run that specific activity. Totally. We want our students to become the best version of themselves. And we don't want to put ourselves onto them. And so allowing that little bit of flexibility will not just be really enjoyable and great for that student, but it also means we can learn so much more about that student in that moment of time as well. So it makes it a lot more beneficial for all of us just to understand and regulate throughout our day. Definitely. And one question I've had from someone who is trying to make sure that they're providing the best for their student is, they are surrounded by technology and they don't know how to provide these sensory activities or sensory supports when there's so much technology around them. So what are some ideas you could maybe give them to help them with this? So it is tricky because, you know, we are filled with tech in education, within, you know, leisure, wherever it might be. Um 
But we also know that it's incre- it can be incredibly overwhelming for people with sensory difficulties, not just the visual element of technology, but also the sound. And so recognising that students are getting overwhelmed a lot quicker than they might otherwise is probably because of that technology. So just think about how can we do a certain activity without the same intensity of input so it might be you think about what do they do daily exercise we can all exercise we can all go for a walk we can all get out into um the environment writing it's a great one i know so many um students that love typing so getting an old keyboard and actually just typing rather than using the computer so for spellings and reading stretching I've been into lots of schools now that after lunch they'll put on a YouTube video of, you know, yoga or something. And the students love it. They love being able to move their body in a certain way and really feel how it's moving. Uh, We can make music. We can be creative. Gardening, that's a brilliant one for a sensory lifestyle. So we've got the physical input, so the digging. um, We've got the vestibular input from the movement. The gardens are filled with visual input. Um, Auditory, we're out in nature, and so it's known as being a lot more calming for our bodies to process. Smells, we've got those natural smells from flowers and plants and the air. And so it's less overwhelming for us because they're all natural smells again. Um, And then cooking. So there's so many ways that we can use and create a sensory lifestyle without worrying too much about technology. Definitely. And like I always love about you, all the ideas you give are either free or really cheap. So people don't have to worry about having this massive budget to help our students, you know, go in for that walk. That's free. Being out in the garden, you've probably got most of the things you need already or someone has in the school if you didn't want to spend money. So I think that's the best thing for everyone sort of takeaway is that you don't have to have this huge budget. No, and just see what what your students are already doing and see how you can just change it up each day. Definitely. I think it's important to remember that our students are going to come in with different needs every day as well. Just like we all go into work or school with different moods and maybe something different has happened that morning. Maybe we've woken up late. Maybe we've woken up early. There's so many things that can have an effect on us as well. Oh, definitely. And, you know, that's the stuff that sometimes when we're in school, it's hard to forget. It's hard to kind of think about. We're thinking about ourselves and we might be late or we might not have organised something. However, when our students come in, many students I support get buses into school. That bus could have been late. It could have broken down. It could have been stuck in traffic. That child may not have slept very well. There's so many elements, like you were just saying. And remembering to try and consider that as part of someone's routine as well is really important. Definitely and I think that's where you know the communication with our parents is really important because I know a lot of people worry about building that relationship with parents and families but sometimes they're the only way that we are going to learn about things that have maybe happened that morning, that night before, the weekend, things like that that can have a huge effect for our students. Yeah and to make the most effective sensory lifestyle we have to be able to provide 
it across, you know, home and education or home and care or home and work, whatever the environments are, for that to then be kind of a fluid um, way that we can support people. Yes, definitely. But this whole episode, like all of your episodes, it was really informative. It's given me things to sort of go away and think about that maybe I wouldn't have thought about or considered before. But what is one thing that you would like people to take away today about sensory lifestyles? I think just remembering that it is that stepping stone. It's that building block approach. It's not something which right today we're going to do this. It's not something where we can just immediately implement this perfect strategy of supporting someone. It's about really recognising for that person what their needs are and on a day-to-day basis trying to be as flexible as we can for their needs as well as our needs and what we need to try and achieve every day and really trying things out so trying a strategy and seeing how that person responds so that then this approach of a sensory lifestyle is more of a long-standing thing and when things change as someone gets older so does the lifestyle Definitely. And I think that's something really important to remember as well. And I know you've discussed that you have a course about becoming a sensory detective. And I think that's a really great place to go after this podcast episode for sure, if people want to find out more. But you also have a range of other online trainings too. Yeah, so there's a specific one for education and teachers all about creating um, sensory profiles. So really understanding the types of students you have in your class. So I talk about fidgety students, distracted students, bored students, dare I say it. Um, And not just why that might be and what it means, but also I talk to you about how can we then provide the best teaching method, the best teaching approach for that type of student. So is it a visual learner? Is it an auditory learner? Is it a kinesthetic learner? And the other one is all about understanding our eight senses. So going into depth about what those senses are and how they develop and how that then relates back to our learning and development and understanding of the world around us. They sound fabulous. Thank you so much for sharing. And I know you've given our audience listeners a discount code for the next year as well. So I'll put those in the show notes. So if you are interested in taking any of Becky's courses, head to the show notes, click all the direct links and they'll be there for you. But thank you so much for coming on again today, Becky, and talking all about sensory lifestyle with us. It's been great. Thank you so much, Becky, for coming back on the podcast today to talk all about a sensory lifestyle. I hope you found this podcast episode helpful. Be sure to head on over to the show notes because I am including links and information for all the different things that we have discussed today. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast because then you will get first news when episodes go live. We have one more final episode with Becky next week as part of our sensory series and we are talking all about the importance of sensory play. So make sure to head back and listen to that when it's live next week. But for now, thank you for listening and I'll speak to you again soon.